Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Love Offering Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Adams, and today's guest is Gina McCowan. Today, Gina and I are talking about women's ministry with purpose, and Gina is sharing that whether we minister to one, 100, 1,000, or 1 million, we are all in women's ministry, and we all have work to do until God calls us home. So get ready for a motivating and passion-filled conversation that will inspire you to use your gifts for kingdom impact today. Hello, Gina. Welcome to the Love Offering Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You were raised in a family with a very loose understanding of God. Would you tell us about your upbringing? So my family background goes back a couple of generations where this story begins. And that's that um, my family came from a particular denomination. And this goes to my grandmother and her siblings. And at one point, one of the siblings, I'll just say defected from that denomination and went to another one. And in that moment, it created upheaval in my family um, where people stopped talking to each other. People were disowning each other. It was just a, a terrible mess. And so for my grandmother, what ended up happening is she did not want to see that same division, that same um, discord happen among her children and, and her grandchildren. And so my grandmother kind of put the kibosh on talking about anything in regards to religion um, because she didn't want to see that division happen in her family. Now, she was a woman of God. Um, you would wake up in the morning and see her sitting at her table, reading her Bible while she had her coffee, but she never forced religion on us. She never took, you know, she didn't force us to go to church. She didn't force us to sit through Bible studies, go to youth, those kind of things. And, um, if you ever even began to have conversations about religion in front of her and it started to get like, even just the slightest bit heated, she shut it down right away. And so because of that, we just had a really um, loose misapplied theology. And so by the time that trickled through my mom and now her raising us kids, what we were really raised with was this God who was kind of the creator of everything. Um, but like a tyrant ogre who was just telling you what you couldn't do. And if you didn't listen to his rules, you were going straight to hell. And then on top of that, my mom utilized that plus the fact that we didn't know our family history of this whole disowning and whatnot to really utilize God and that family history to kind of scare us like a scare tactic into following the rules that she determined were good for us as, as children, whether they were biblical or not, didn't actually matter. So um, we were really raised with this idea that, you know, if you step out of line, you're going to hell and over half the family is going to disown you. And so that, that, that was the, that was the theology we were raised with. And it was one that lacked hope. Mm. It really, it just, it completely lacked hope. Well, so needless to say, you're honest to say that you struggled with your faith for a very long time. And you say your heart longed for faith, but not as you were experiencing it. So tell us about this season and how you moved past it. As a kid, I think that I've always known that there was something greater. I think I've always, you know, I always believed that God existed, but because of the way that he was packaged and sold to me, I just didn't like it. 
it didn't seem right. It didn't set right. And so that put me in years of just trying to search and understand what faith meant, um, learning about other faith systems, and even to the point of questioning for myself, like, could I literally just kind of listen to all these different faith systems, pick the beautiful, beautiful stuff out of it and, and almost create like my own faith system that makes sense to me. And um, the problem is when you try to do that, it doesn't mesh together. It, it is faulty. And, and ultimately, when you begin to really understand um, our Christian faith, you understand how that can't even work. But at the time, it was just, it never satisfied. It never answered all of the questions. It never made me feel complete. And so it was a really long season of seeking and searching. And when I was in middle school, I was actually taken to a revival by my sister. My sister is about 10 years older than me and she had become a born again Christian. And so she took me to this weekend revival. And by the end of the weekend, um, you know, I had had the gospel presented to me. I had said the sinner's prayer. I was baptized at the revival and um, I really had this, um, the, the idea of Jesus accepting him into my heart, wiping the slate clean just was so super appealing to me. Um, but there was also some fault there where my sister, um, the church that held the revival, like there was no follow-up to that moment. Mm -hmm. And so I still walked away from that with this. I, I had hope, this hope that, Hey, my slate has been wiped clean. I'm a new creation in Christ. Um, but I didn't understand at that time that it wasn't just about wiping the slate of my past clean, but also that Jesus had died for everything I was going to do in the future that I still had no idea was even coming. And so it still had me kind of trapped in that same mentality of um, trying to do the right thing as to not disappoint Jesus who died for me. And then by high school, because now, you know, you're 15, 16, 17 years old, you think, you know, everything. Um, I started making some bad choices um, because I thought I could, because I didn't have any real rooted faith at that point. And then as I began to learn like, hey, the Bible says you shouldn't do this, or the Bible says you shouldn't do that, I began to feel like a failure, that I had failed Christ, that I had messed up that one opportunity where my slate had been wiped clean. And um, so by the time I graduated high school and went into college, I really thought I was destined for hell. I really did. I, I full heartedly believed that. And um, I continued to make really terrible choices because at that point it was like, well, I'm going to hell. Uh, as soon as my family finds out some of the choices I've made, they're all going to disown me anyway. So I might as well just do whatever I want until I get there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had gone from having no hope to having hope to then becoming hopeless. And um, that was a really weird season for me. And when I look back at that now, I can just simply go, nothing but the grace of God got me through that. And, um, you know, the, the season seemed like a very long season, but what helped me move past that was actually meeting my husband. My husband was raised in the church. His father was a pastor. Um, he was like, uh, one of those guys that like when he was in high school was taking evangelism explosion courses and going out and sharing the gospel wherever he went. And, um, even amongst our rowdy crowd of, of friends, you know, he would leave on Saturday night early because he had to go to church in the morning. And um, so he really was the catalyst for helping me move past that moment and opening the door to me to what really living 
um, in the Christian faith, having a Christ-like faith, but really truly understanding the gospel and the salvation story that came from the, the fact that I, I got to marry this wonderful man. Thank you for sharing all that. You know, I, I'm sure many of us, me included, um, relate so much to your story. Um, and then, in fact, um, you, you sort of started to talk about your husband. You actually say that you never wanted to be married and you never wanted to be a parent, but obviously God had other plans. So would you share your plans versus God plan, God's plans and what you discovered about God's intention for marriage and maybe also maybe what you think his plan was in making you a mother? When I was growing up, my parents divorced when I was really young. I was two. And my mom remarried a couple of times and they were just terrible marriages. And um, I just never had a good example of what a marriage looked like, let alone a godly marriage, but even just marriage in general. And uh, my grandparents were separated. Um, Most of my friends, their parents were, they were either single parents um, because they were separated or that they had never been married. And so I just really didn't have a good, solid example of marriage. Um, And so it, it really kind of didn't make the idea of marriage appealing to me. I wasn't that little girl who dreamed of getting married, who planned her wedding day when she was a little kid. Uh, It just was not something I even considered. Um, I liked being independent. I liked making my own decisions. I liked being in control of my own future. Um, So the idea of having to bring somebody into that that could affect that didn't appeal to me at all. And my uncle, which is my mother's brother, he was, he, or he is a lifelong bachelor and I've got to witness him, you know, financial security, being able to travel. He goes and does whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. He had this great flourishing career. And, um, that to me was far more appealing. Um, not to mention the fact that for my mom being a single mom, raising three kids, I watched her financially struggle. The fact that he didn't financially struggle was appealing to me. And um, so that was kind of my view on marriage. It just didn't, I I don't know, it it wasn't in a rock in my socks at the Mm -hmm. time. And um, having a kid or any children at all also really didn't factor into that because that would again mean that I would be tied down from being able to do all the things I wanted to do. Plus, I was raised in that generation of Dr. Phil and Oprah, where we're being told you know, and, and not that all of them carry that same belief now, but back then it was this idea that you are going to sort of perpetuate the, the history that you had, you know, if you're an abusive parent or if you had an abusive parent, you're probably going to be abusive. You know, like there were these weird ideologies and, and beliefs and, and theories going around that time. And so I didn't want to get married to just end up divorced. I didn't want to have my kids struggled because I struggled. I, I just didn't want that. Um, and the world just seemed to be falling apart around me at the time. It just seemed, you know, there was just all this horrible stuff in the world. Why would you want to bring a kid into this so that they would have to live through that? Um, with all, even some of my own experiences, I didn't even want my kids to have to be tempted with that. And so the easier decision was, well, I won't get married and I won't have any kids. And that solves that problem. And, uh, So I was just going to go and live my life and travel and make money and do all of the things that I thought would define success for me. And then I meet my husband and within about two weeks, I knew that I, we would end up married. (laughs) Uh, 
And then, you know, the next thing we know, you know, we're talking about the idea of having a family. And it was just this really bizarre thing, this moment that I never thought would happen. And here I am having this conversation. And so, um, you know, it, it was it was crazy to me. It was just absolutely crazy to me to see that shift. But God has taught me so much through that because, you know, like when you look at marriage, God taught me that. I didn't need to be independent. I could depend upon someone else. And when we look in the Bible and it talks, you know, we have all these illustrations about um, the relationship with us and Christ and it, you know, having that same marriage relationship of, I I had to be dependent on my husband um, to care for me. And when I became a stay at home mom to provide for me and all of those things, all those independent things that I thought I wanted and on my own, I had to lay that down for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of our children. And um, there's so many parallels there that you can look at to what we do with our life with Christ, that the moment that I surrendered my life to Christ, when I really did it, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, um, I surrendered all everything, all those desires, all those wants, all the stuff that I had thought I wanted for my future. And I said, God, if it's your will, I'll, I'll do whatever you ask. Mm-hmm. You say, you know, who will go? I'm raising my hand. And I said, I will send me. That's, that was a shift where it was that dying to self. Um, as far as my kids go. So my, my husband really kind of helped shift some of my theology as we were married. And, and as we were talking, we, we started our family really early. Um, and so what was interesting is that, so I have my first daughter and, um, you know, I really wanted her to have a better shot at this than I did. And so my solution at the time, cause my theology still wasn't great. So my solution at the time was the problem in my theology was that my family didn't start me early enough. That's what I thought. So I'm going to take that my daughter, I'm going to get her into church. I may not be able to save myself, but by golly, I will save her. And so I'm going to have her in church from the day she's born. And so um, she was born at the end of March. And then we went into, I think Easter was like two weeks later and that child was at church for Easter and she was there every Sunday after. But what was really interesting was that as I was trying to teach her the gospel, I was actually teaching myself the gospel. And in my attempt to save her, it actually got me to finally get to that point where I understood the fullness of the gospel that Christ had not just come for my past, but he came for my future and that there was actually still hope for me. And that was where I transitioned. Like I said, there was hope, you know, there was no hope. Then I found hope Then it was hopeless. And then there was like this renewed hope where I was like, I get it. I finally get it. And so when I talk to people about my salvation experience, I will tell them that really the moment that it truly happened when I truly got it was, was through the birth of my first daughter. She saved me by introducing me to Christ really and truly. Um, And then, so that was a lesson that God had taught me was, you know what, these little kids that you have, they're going to teach you things that are going to blow your mind. Mm -hmm. And for my first daughter, it was teaching. She taught me the love of Christ um, in this weird backwards way where I was trying to teach her, but actually I was the student. And then, um, when I had my second daughter, um, I, you know what, I'm like a lot of women, there's that annual appointment. None of us want to go to it. It's not fun. We don't like it. We dread it. 
And so after I had had my first daughter, I had kind of been putting it off and uh, found out I was, I, I took the home pregnancy test, found out I was pregnant again with my second, finally had to make that appointment. And I went in and um, they discovered during that exam that um, there was some suspicious stuff going on. And it turned out that I actually had um, precancerous cells. Mm -hmm. And so my second daughter coming into my life actually saved my life because I know myself and I know that probably by the time I would have gone to the doctor for having symptoms, it would have been too late. So the fact that I got pregnant with her, got me to the doctor sooner, saw those cells sooner, got me treatment sooner. And so my first daughter kind of saved my soul and my, my second daughter saved my actual life. Mm -hmm. And then when my third daughter came, um, it was like, um, there was something unique about her personality that really changed me as a, a human being, where through her, I found more compassion and more empathy and more um, became more affectionate and um, a softer human being. And so um, she, I think that, you know, as, as I said, you know, my first one saved my soul, my second one saved my life and my third one saved, I think she saved my humanity. Mm. Uh, so, you know, God's teaching me stuff through these kids constantly and through my marriage constantly that when I look back to where I was in those days when I said, I don't want this, I don't want to get married, I don't want to have kids. That was somebody who was still broken. Mm -hmm. And what God was able to do through my husband and through my kids was to actually reverse all that weird thinking that the world had taught me about how I was just going to continue to kind of duplicate the way that I was raised, duplicate the problems, the dysfunction, the whatever, and go, no, we can break those chains. We can start something new. And all of that dysfunction that was in your family, we're going to stop that here. The bonds are broken here. And these kids are going to know a future unlike anything you ever experienced. And, you know, now that I'm, you know, my oldest is 21. Now that I'm this many years in, I can say nothing but the truth of that. My kids are experiencing a life that I never knew. And that is by the grace of God, because it's by the grace of God, I'm still here. Gosh, what a beautiful perspective. And I would echo the same sentiments that having children changed everything for me, spiritually, especially. And yeah. yeah. So, so when you became a mother, you wanted to spare your daughter from all the mistakes that you made, but you say that while you were fighting for her future, or I guess their future, all three, you had given up on yours. So at what point did you begin to dream again? Um, it's, that's a tough question for me to answer because I really did surrender it all to raise these kids. Um, at the time, my husband and I were married um, and, and we didn't have kids yet. I was actually the one making the most money in the family. So when I quit my job to stay home with them, you know, we had really put ourselves in a position I, I thought I would never be in. And um, I've fought to give them opportunities and I fought to teach them that, you know, just go for it, you know, go for, for whatever the world has to offer, take those opportunities. Um, anybody who knows me will tell you I live in a space of um, kind of what's the worst that can happen if you ask, you know, they'll say no. Uh, but if you don't ask, you've missed a ton of opportunities. And so I'm constantly testing the world as to, to, and, and to what it's willing to give me. And so 
but I, but I had always applied that to them because I thought, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, I'm staying at home. I'm going to lose all my skills. Nobody's ever going to want to hire me again. Um, I might as well give up my future and just focus on them making the best of theirs. And then even to the point of thinking to my head, but I'm going to be the best grandma out there because I'm going to help them get their future by watching their kids. And, and like, it, it's this weird thought that you begin to have as a parent that you think so far ahead. Um, so I had kind of just put my stuff to the side, um, served in my church, you know, I, over the years, done little things here and there to try to make some additional money just to help fund stuff in the house. But um, I really had not thought much of my own future. And then um, about 10 years ago, serving in women's ministry, there was kind of this thought in my head that was like, well, you know, what if, um, what if there was a better resource out there for women's ministry? What if, what if we could get together and, and talk shop? What if we could whatever? And I began to dream again about having an impact on the world in, in the realm of women's ministry. Um, I never dreamed that I would write a book and it would be published. Um, I never dreamed that I would, you know, speak um, at conferences, certainly never saw myself doing podcast interviews, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, that had never really come into full fruition in my mind as a dream. Um, and even now it seems still surreal and I struggle with what that future looks like for me, but there was definitely a moment that I would go even say maybe five years ago where I kind of really hit me in the heart where God was saying, I'm not done with you yet. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's this, uh, this phrase that uh, myself and a couple of really close friends use, and, we, and I've already said it once in here, I'm still here. Yeah. Every day that I'm still here means that God has something for me to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it, it, and there's opportunities that he's presented where I've been able to, you know, go back to school and um, I ended up getting a degree in divinity. Never saw that coming. God made that happen. God made that possible for me. Um, but I knew, well, if he's doing that, there's got to be a purpose for it. I'm going to use this somewhere. And then, um, you know, a, a year after, I think a year after that was done, um, I, in a really ch weird chance conversation with a college, was talking about, you know, with my years of experience that I could probably write a course on women's ministry and they took me up on it. And so the next thing I knew, I had written this whole course on women's ministry that's done. Um, it's through Christian Leaders Institute. And um, I, I, you know, it's a video. The class, the class structure is video. So I had to record myself doing all of the classwork, but because they also stream this to other countries, they needed a written version of it so that they could translate it into different languages. And um, as I'm printing out this printed version of my class and I set it down, I looked at it and I was like, I wrote a book. Like I didn't even plan wow. to write a book. Yeah. A book. And um, so there's these just wild moments where God was, God has allowed me now to look back and go, wow, I can see where you were working in the backgrounds um, uh, of what was going on in my life and other people's lives that pieced us all together, that put us all together for, you know, the Esther 414 for such a time as this, um, that, that there was a point and purpose. There's a reason, again, while I'm still 
here. There's still work for me to do. And so every day that I get up, the thing that I remind myself is I'm still here. I'm still here. And if I'm still here, that means I have one more day to get it right. I have one more day to do what he's asked me to do. I have one more day to share the gospel with someone. I have one more day to say to somebody, I'm sorry. I have one more day that I can give forgiveness. I have one more day. It's this like perpetual hope Mm -hmm. of there's still an opportunity to do what God has called me to do because he hasn't called me home yet. And um, so because of that, it's, it's almost like I have entered this space where I don't even necessarily know that I dream about my future anymore, but more that I sit in this wild anticipation of what God's going to do next. And I don't think to the future, but part of that is where God's worked on me because I am by nature, a planner. I like to know where I'm going. Uh, I like to know, where the end is. I want to know all the steps that are going to get me there. And because God has kind of taken me out of that space, he's made me fully dependent on him that I I literally wake up each day and go, all right, I really don't know why you have me involved in this right now, but okay, I'll do it. I'm just going to be obedient to that. And at some point I'm going to see what it is that you're doing and um, having those moments of having to truly just depend upon and have faith in that whatever God's doing, it's for his benefit and his glory. And, you know, I'm not going to be harmed in the process. Um, I I can, I can really just kind of let go and trust God. That's not to say when I say that I'm not going to be harmed in the process. Look, I know the enemy is real. I know that he's throwing all of his stuff at me. Um, Spiritual attacks happen. Spiritual battles happen. I just trust in the word that, you know what, it might be a flesh wound, but he's not going to kill me because I have that eternal promise in Christ. So I just keep pushing through. Um, but it, it's really weird. But that, that question about, you know, dreaming again, I just don't know that I, I have a big dream anymore other than just to serve God to the fullness of what he's called me to do. Wow. That that'll preach, Gina. I mean, gosh, that is just <laughs> inspiring. Like one day at a time. What do you have for me today, Lord? So, so good. Well, speaking of some darts, maybe that you've been thrown um, several years ago, you were diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, yeah. you did. So, so what is this condition and how has life changed since this diagnosis? Um, after my daughter, my third daughter was born, I noticed that I was really struggling to recover from that process of, you know, having a kid and what have you. And I would talk to friends and they would say things to me like, well, you're a mom of three now. But if you look at our math, our kids are so spread apart that even when I had my third, I had two kids already in school. So I wasn't like the mom that had like, you know, three kids under five that's pulling her hair out because there, there's so much need there. Um, and I was also still fairly young. I was, you know, just barely 32 when I had my last child. So it also wasn't a factor of, well, now I'm older. And so it took me several years to actually get the diagnosis. And Hashimoto's thyroiditis is an autoimmune disease where my body is treating my thyroid like it is an invasive, like an invasive disease or invasive organ or, or whatever. And so my body every day is actively trying to kill my thyroid. You know, anything about your thyroid um, is that it actually regulates a lot of stuff in your body. And so when you have this particular um, disease, 
Some days my thyroid doesn't want to work like it should. Some days my thyroid overworks. And so I, if you, I kind of swing back and forth from being hypothyroid and hyperthyroid. And um, so that's an interesting game when it comes to medication, um, because some days my medication can be too much and I have to take a couple of days off. And some days my medication is not enough. And you really have to get in tune with your own body and how it works. Um, there's about 300 potential symptoms for Hashimoto's. Um, so I don't, thank God I don't have all 300 of them. Um, but how it has affected me over the years is um, brain fog. I have trouble thinking, uh, retaining information. Um, I physically am tired. I have physical pain in my body. My joints ache. My skin hurts to touch. Um, in fact, like if I haven't, you know, if my arm itches and I go to scratch it, I might as well take like a serrated bread knife and scratch my arm. That's what it feels like. Um, it can affect um, my hormones. It can affect my cycle. It can affect my moods. So there's some, um, you know, hormonal, emotional stuff that it does. Um, again, the mental side of it, the physical side of it, it's a very draining disease and there is no cure for it. Um, I have prayed for years that God would take this from me. And unfortunately, this is going to be the thorn that's in my side that I have prayed for. And God has chosen not to take it from me, but I can see the glory for God in it. Because when you look at all the stuff that I do right now, I can tell you wholeheartedly that I do not do this in my own strength. I do this in the strength of the Lord, because if it was up to my body, I would be in bed right now. Uh, if it was up to my body, I would be doing the bare minimal to just get by. Um, at my worst, I would get up. I would take my children to school. I would come home and go back to bed. I would get out of bed. I would pick them up. I would come home. I'd get them set on their homework. And then I would sit down on the couch. Usually I would fall asleep. I would wake up when my husband walked in the door. I would make dinner. As soon as dinner was done, I didn't even do the dishes. I was back in bed. And um, it is an exhaustion like you've never experienced because no matter how much you sleep, you never feel rested. You never feel like you've gotten enough sleep. And it was like this day in and day out. Um, however, as much as I've prayed about it um, being healed, um, God didn't totally go, no, I'm going to make you suffer like this the rest of your life. Um, he did introduce me over time to some new doctors um, different medications, um, different um, information. I really had to become an advocate for my own health. And I had to start talking to other people with the condition, learning about what things worked for them. And so I had to adjust my diet. I had to adjust um, the way that I lived my life. I had to learn to say no. I had to understand that I had limitations and really begin to prioritize what is the most important stuff in my life, which is uh, the work that I do in ministry, my family, and then everything else is an optional thing. And I've had to learn to balance that and, and, and have a willingness to even to my best friend say, I, not today, I can't today, to say to my church, I know that you need this extra help. I'm not the girl for it today. Um, and you learn how to compensate. I know that if I'm having a good day and I'm feeling well, that's the day I need to get the most done because tomorrow could be a different story. Um, so it's had a huge impact on my life, but I also, in addition to just seeing how that I work in God's strength, because he did not instantly heal me, that'd be such a wonderful testimony, but it's not my testimony. 
Um, but because he did not heal me and introduced me to these amazing doctors and different ways to treat my body. Now, as I encounter other people um, that talk to me about the way they feel, it's funny. I'll usually say, well, when was the last time you had your thyroid levels tested? Mm -hmm. And almost universally, they'll say, oh, I, I haven't done that. And I'll say, you need to go do that. Um, or someone will come to me that doesn't even have the same disease. And I'll say, you know what, why, somebody local anyway, um, you know, why don't you go see my doctor? And they go and see my doctor and my doctor has been able to help them um, manage their disease. Uh, Cause autoimmune diseases are just a, they're, they're just a rough place because we just still don't have enough answers about why our bodies are doing this or how to best treat it. And so um, I've actually been able to help other people because of the fact that I haven't been healed. And if that is nothing but something that I can give God glory for, uh, I'll do that all day long and I'll suffer for, you know, with this for the rest of my life. If that means that I can help other people get well. And um, so it has impacted my life, but um, now I'm not in that space. I work differently. I have more, I would say I have more energy to do what God's called me to do. Um, I give the glory to him for giving me the wisdom to also know what just needs to go off my plate. And I can begin to, I can sense it now. I know when I've got too much on my plate and I need to pull back. And um, I know when I need to take time to heal. And, and even in the season I'm in right now with, you know, what's going on in our, our life, I'm looking at this as a Sabbath season where I get to rest and my body gets to recoup and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm excited to see what he's resting me up for when we get onto the other side of, you know, what's happening in our own personal lives right now. Um, I'm excited to see what that means. There's something on the other side of it and I'm still here for it. Yeah. So, um, I yeah, yeah, there, there's the hope again. And, you know, on the topic of balance and um, for years, you say you tried to do it all and always give a yes. But as you mentioned, it left you empty and you finally reached a point to say enough. How were you finally yeah. able to surrender? My days were full to the brim. Um, my house was falling apart because this, you know, this disease was at its worst. And uh, I, my kids were in bed. It was like midnight. I'm in the house. I'm trying to sweep the floors. And I literally just broke down and I started crying. And I sat in the dirt pile in the middle of my foyer, just bawling. Like, this is not the life I want to live. This is not how I want it to be. And um, right after that, was when I met my new doctor um, and I was able to get some more testing done and get some better idea of my own body and system. Um, but it was right then that it was like, you know what, if, if all I have is this limited amount of energy, I have to spend it wisely. And what are those most important things to me? And like I said before, that was serving my church. That was being with my family and everything else being able to go to the side. But I had to get to that breaking point, I think, where I, I just had to recognize I just can't. And one of the best steps that I made was the very next day I went onto Facebook and um, I made a post. And back then, like you have to understand, at that point, I really didn't have a platform. I wasn't writing this out to masses. This was going out to just my personal friends. And it was for the first time that I publicly stated, I have this disease. This is what this disease is. This is what it does to my body. This is what it means. This is why I have to cancel 
please still keep inviting me to things, even knowing I might have to cancel. I can't continue to do everything on my own. I'm going to need help with things. Um, please give me grace when I tell you I can't do what you've asked me to do. And actually by doing that, what I created was a system of accountability. And so after that, when my friends or when people that I go to church with or whatever would come to me and they would say, you know, hey, I need help with this. They would always, you know, kind of put that little caveat. It's okay for you to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was a huge moment of admitting that I had the disease, admitting I couldn't do it all and opening myself up to accountability to the people who are the closest to me. And now that continues that I actually do have some platform and I'm going and doing things that I have a couple of people who are reminding me, don't take on too much. Do you really need to do that event? Do you really need to go there? You've been gone, you know, three weekends this month, you're pushing it. And they really help put me in check. And um, that's, that's such a beautiful thing that when God gives you those people who can love you more than you love yourself. And um, also being able to admit to my family, to my husband and my kids, mom's sick. And this is why I struggle with these things. Because before I was really just kind of keeping it to myself. I had this, this weird idea that eventually the medication would work or that it, and it would all go back to normal. And having to accept that normal is now going to be a lot different for me. And I need to bring people into what normal looks like. And that, like I said, that included my husband and my kids too. And now we function differently. My kids are more helpful and they can see when I'm having a bad day and they will pick up the slack. And, um, and in fact, just uh, at, at the beginning of, um, of this year, I had an opportunity to speak at a conference. And, you know, usually when I speak, I speak about, you know, women's ministry or the gospel or, you know, my testimony or whatever, as far as my salvation goes. But this was the first time I actually spoke about having grace, giving, leading women with grace through chronic illness. And um, my eldest daughter had come with me that day because she was helping me out with some things there. And she, for the very first time, got to hear the full story of what it was like for me. And um, it was good. It was good for her to hear that. And I think that it's good. And the people that responded to that of, you know what, I have a chronic illness or I have a child with a chronic illness um, or, you know, thank you for helping me see the women that I serve Mm -hmm. better. And I'm like, you know what, to God be all the glory to God be all the glory. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've had to find balance. I had to get to that point where I had to say no. And um, because of that, everything that I do, I think, is so much sweeter because it feels so much more intentional and so much more purposeful versus just saying yes to everything. And it also gives other people an opportunity to step up because Gina's not saying yes all the yeah. time. My husband gets on my case about that all the time. He's like, you know, there's other people in the church, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good lesson for all of us. Uh, well, speaking of the church and, and working and do, having ministry within the church, you, you've written a book that you sort of mentioned earlier. It's called Women's Ministry with Purpose, a Vibrant Gospel-Centered Approach. So, Gina, what is, do you think, the true purpose of women's ministry? When I first was rolling in women's ministry, serving in women's ministry, um, it, to me, it was, 
I had bought into this idea. It was just a great way to fellowship and connect with the women of the church, that it was um, an opportunity to build relationships, which is, which it is. Um, And then probably about uh, 10 years ago, um, author Gloria Furman had, had defined women's ministry as women ministering to women. And I bought, I I loved that. And I, I latched onto that for a while, but in the process of writing that college course, which then became the book, what I realized was the true purpose of women's ministry is the Great Commission. It is one of the avenues in which we, as women who are leading in the church and serving in the church, are going forth and sharing the gospel with other people, making disciples, teaching them the word, baptizing them, all of that. That is what women's ministry is. And if you're Women's ministry's root call, um, root mission is not the Great Commission. Then you're you're off center, and you need to get back to where um, that true purpose is, where we've all been commissioned um, to go and serve and to to share the gospel. So, I'm interested. What do you think women's ministry has gotten caught up in, sort of distracted or deterred by, and, and what do you think it really is meant to be? So I, in my book, I use this phrase um, that women's ministry has become Pinterest ministry. And I don't say that lightly because um, being in women's ministry for as long as I have been, um, coaching women's ministry leaders, really keeping my fingers on the pulse of women's ministry. I, cause I will tell you, like I'm a Facebook group stalker. So if there's a Facebook group for women's ministry leaders, I'm in there somewhere. And I'm watching and I'm observing and I'm, 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 I'm reading how they're doing ministry. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I see a post that starts like I have this beautiful um, decorating scheme that I want to use. Can you help me find a verse to go with that? Mm-hmm. And um, or, you know, we're going to get our women together and, um, you know, we're going to do this craft project or we're going to do this painting or we're going to, um, and, and I use this as an example. And if the, and if 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 one of your listeners is this church, um, just know that I say this with love. Um, where they're bringing in a speaker to talk about, you know, the history of the apron, or they're bringing in a speaker that, um, you know, wants to talk about, you know, how to potty train your children, how to, you know, um, how to have a better marriage. But when we do that, when we, when we go into those areas, we're really only talking to a specific group of women. Women's ministry is not marriage ministry. It's not children's ministry. It's not Pinterest ministry. It's ministering to women. It's, it's the great commission. It is, it is making disciples. And when you look at a lot of those kind of, um, I'm sure you've probably seen them there either on a blog or, you know, one of the online magazines where it's like an open letters to women's ministry about, you know, all the things that are wrong with women's ministry. What you see is that th- particularly now women that are, you know, in their um, 40s and younger, they're not looking for a women's ministry that teaches them the next decorating tip or how to debone a chicken. They're looking for theology. They want to be discipled. And what we've done is we've gotten so wrapped up in the fun stuff that we've left, you know, the potatoes, that we've left the meat aside. We haven't really dug into theology and our ladies are ready and starving for that. So we get caught up in all these cute, kitschy things, um, but we leave out the most important thing, 
we need to get Jesus back to the center of what women's ministry is doing. And so we do that and we get back in alignment by first, we have to surrender the entire ministry to God. This isn't Gina's ministry. This is not Rachel's ministry. This is God's ministry. And God, how do you want this women's ministry to function in this church and in this community? And then we go to our pastors and we say, what is the vision that God has given you for this church? And how do you see the women's ministry helping you execute the vision of this church? So if your church is mission-minded, your women's ministry needs to be mission-minded. If your church is, you know, um, going out and sharing the gospel minded, like evangelism minded, then your women's ministry needs to be. If it is, um, you know, it, it, you just have to understand what the calling on the church is and how you fit into it. So that women's ministry is no longer this little thing that's being done on the side um, to kind of keep the women happy and connected, but it's actually a vital integral part of the mission of the church. And when we can get back into that space and we are, are where we're supposed to be, then our ministry is doing what it's meant to be, which is being a gospel-centered, great commission-minded, serious business ministry. If I am not using women's ministry to disciple other women or to go out and introduce the gospel to other women, then honestly, I'm not doing anything that these women couldn't do on their own. They can go to a paint night with their friends, they can go craft with ceramics with their friends, scrapbooking nights. They can do all that stuff with their friends. They don't need the church for that. What they need the church, what they need the women's ministry for is to help them grow spiritually. And uh, that has to be our priority. And unfortunately, I don't think that it has been. Um, and I think that we've kind of siloed ourselves off into this little side ministry off of the church. And we need to be part of the church. Well, so, so what does that sort of break that down for us even more? So practically speaking, what does that look like? Like, how are we as women, how are we called to minister to other women? How do, how do you put this into practice? So we put this into practice by, again, first we have to start, you know, we, we surrender it to God. We find out from our pastors how they want to see the women's ministry functioning in their church. And then we come up with the action plans on what that looks like. So that means that um, we need to be developing more women leaders in our church so that they can become small group leaders, so that they can become people who participate in one-to-one -one discipling, so that they can organize community service projects or connect with the nonprofit in their area where they can serve as the church out in the community we need to begin to connect with those things. Um, as a women's ministry leader, I think the easiest way for me to answer this is sort of what I do as a women's ministry leader at my church. So I look for who can be my next small group leader and how do I develop them into that? I help my pastor find the best um, study curriculum that's out there. I will also go and train women to lead in other capacities in the church. Um, so that they are serving within our community. I am connected with our nonprofits like the um, Crisis Pregnancy Center, our Christian adoption agencies, um, our Christian fostering agencies, the ones that are out helping the homeless, the ones that are dealing with the elderly. I connect with them. I find out what their needs are. And then I come into my church and then I gather the women to go do the serving. 
Um, and really what ends up kind of happening there too, is as you do that really well as a women's ministry, you're going to see your men's ministry also pick that up too. And they're going to do the same things. So it doesn't become just the women doing it, but also the men are doing it and then we're doing it together. Um, but if we're going to serve and we're going to minister to other women, the first thing we have to do is I think disciple them. And that is making them leaders. That's getting them out there serving. That's opening their eyes to what's going on in the world and how can they be a part of it? helping them identify what their spiritual gifts are and where to put those into use, uh, teaching them the word, teaching them how to pray. We have to stop assuming that women know how to pray or that anybody knows how to pray. We have to teach them how to pray. Um, we need to get them out there and involved, but also, and this is probably when I'm training leaders, this is what I say when I, I try to shift this to the body of women is the best thing that you can do, the first thing out the date, gate you can do with the women that you're serving, you learn her name. Just knowing her name, being able to call her by name when you see her on Sunday morning can change a woman um, and how she feels about herself, especially if she is a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home wife or a widow or somebody who just feels like nobody sees mm -hmm. her. When you call her by name, that's huge. And then the second thing is you learn her story. What's going on in her life? Where did she come from? Where is she going to? What, what is it that she feels that God's calling her to do? Or if she doesn't know what it is, helping her get there. So if we're ministering to her, we know who she is. We know her story. And then we've developed a relationship with her so that when she has need or concern, that she knows that there's somebody that she can go to and express that need and concern to. And I'm going to be there to either pray with her or I'm going to be able to call the church up and say, hey, you know, we have an issue here. We need to rally around her. We need resources for her. We need whatever. Um, but to, to really be able to minister to them where they are right in that moment. Um, I always talk to my women's ministry leaders about, you know, contact your pastor, find out if you have, and if you don't have one, develop one, a list of crisis phone numbers. So that when you have that woman who comes to you and she says that she has a, you know, an addiction issue, you have a phone number to reference her to immediately. Uh, don't, don't play the game of let me try to get some info, have that out the gate. That's ministering to your women. Know who can help her get food on her plate. Know who can help her with the behavioral issues her children are having. Know who can help her legally if she's going through a divorce. Have those answers ahead of time so that when you're ministering, you're ministering well. It's not just about ministering. It's ministering well to her. And so we kind of have to be proactive and think about all of these big things as a leader that we're going to be um, presented against. When I was, you know, in my early 20s leading my first small group, no one prepared me for that two o'clock in the morning phone call from a woman in crisis. Mm. I didn't know what to do with that. So we have to be prepared because that happens. That's reality and creating the environment where they feel like they can talk to us and they can share these things with us and that we can walk through them. But that also means we need to know our limitations. I may be a women's ministry leader. I may have a degree in divinity. I may have written a book. I may have been serving in church ministry for, you know, 20 something years. However, I am not a licensed counselor. I am not a doctor. I'm not a recovery specialist. That is outside of my field of expertise. And so ministering to women well, leading them well, also means knowing where I end and the professionals begin. And so there's, it's a big question about, you know, 
being called to minister to women and what that looks like. But it really comes down to, to, I think maybe there's three key points of knowing their name, knowing her story and meeting her right where she's at. Mm, Gosh, those are so good. Thank you for breaking that down so well. Well, so you also believe that there is a kingdom leader in everyone. So why do you believe that? The Great Commission. Mm -hmm. Every one of us has been called to go out to the ends of the earth to teach the gospel, to disciple people, to baptize them, and, and to teach them his word and just to keep doing that. So for that reason alone, every single one of us, once we have stepped into and accepted Christ as our savior, and we have chosen to live this Christ-like life, we instantly have become a kingdom leader. Now you may be leading one, you may be leading 1000, you may be leading 1 million, but you are still a kingdom leader. And because of that, there is a responsibility on your shoulders to make sure that if you're going to be out leading in the kingdom, that you yourself are in the word every day, that you're praying, that you are you know, fostering that relationship with Christ yourself. And so um, I always tell people to be a good kingdom leader. The very first person you're leading is yourself. Mm, Yeah. Well, so you're also committed to helping women find out their giftings and how to utilize those gifts in church ministries and community where God has placed them. So what is step one in this process of discovering your gifts and how to utilize them? So I like to, I, I think this should just be, like part of what we do in every church everywhere. I don't care what your denomination is. I don't care whatever is that the moment that they have come in and they have accepted Christ as their savior, we walk them towards the step of baptism. And then the very next thing we need to do after they've been baptized is let's get them right into a spiritual gifts testing. And I know there's several different ones out there. I don't even really care which one you use, but help them see themselves um, in, in how, God would use them in the church or the community. Um, There's so much that I didn't even understand myself when I took my own, uh, like the first time I ever took a spiritual gifts test, I took it on my own. Somebody had told me about it. I didn't know it existed. I took it on my own. I didn't do it like alongside anybody. And so that was great. Um, I got my answer, but I didn't really know what that looked like. And so I, I, and I didn't know how that would function in the church and especially, um, you know, just to put this into in clarity, um, I'm Southern Baptist. So if you know anything about the Southern Baptist, um, you know, in our churches, the head pastor position, the shepherd position is for men. Now, after that, uh, the Southern Baptists, are, they, we get a little divisive. Some say all pastor positions are for men and some are saying, no, just the head pastor. And then if he wants to appoint, that's his you know, whatever. And I don't want to get into that debate, but I just wanted to clarify my position as I, as I came into this, um, was that when I took my spiritual gift testing, my, one of my number ones was shepherding. Well, that's a pastoral position in my mind. And I was like, at the time I was like, well, that's not something I can do because I'm a woman and pastors are men. And um, I, I was really stuck with that for a long time until I sat with somebody years later and they said, well, you know, have you ever taken a spiritual gifts test? I said, yes, I had. And here's what my results are. And I said, but I've really struggled with this one because, you know, that's a position for, you know, men only. And she's like, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, she's like, you have to understand that shepherding, there's a lot to being a shepherd beyond just being a pastor. 
And she said, so, you know, she, and she was from a different denomination. And, and again, I don't want to get into the debate of it. She's really challenged me to, to continue to think about that and to study that and to see what God's word says over what man's word says about the role of women in a church. Um, but at the time, that was a moment that I had not considered was that the word shepherding really does have a lot of definitions. And you can be a shepherd of people in a lot of different ways. When you're a small group leader, you're shepherding. When you're leading a mops group, you're shepherding. When you are walking alongside just one person, you're shepherding. And so um, that's why I think it's not just important to do the spiritual gifts testing, but you need to do it with somebody who's walked the road ahead of you, who has a better understanding of what these gifts are and how they function in the church and how they function in the community so that um, you're not just learning what your gift is, but you're learning actually where to use it and where it fits within the church. And I really think that when we can get to that point with that utilizing gifts in the church is if we help people find out what their gift is, not what they're good at, that's different, but what their actual gifting is and how that's used in the church We will see volunteerism raise. We will see commitment to that raise. We won't see the burnout because people will be serving in their passion. They won't just be serving to fill holes. And so I actually think that by doing it the right way of utilizing their gifts in the church and helping them identify that and where it fits actually resolves a lot of the issues we have even, um, you know, technically in the church when it comes to volunteerism and, and, and burnout and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's not just one step. I think it's probably the most important Mm -hmm. step. Well, so you also help lead the women's ministry council. So would you share what this council is and what do you love most about it? Women's ministry council started over a cup of coffee. Uh, myself, another women's ministry leader were talking, and it was really just about like getting together other women's ministry leaders to talk shop. Because if you looked at it, especially at the time, uh, the books that were out for women's ministry were very outdated. None of them were really leadership based. They were mostly about like how to put on events or devotions you can use with your women's ministry events and things like that. There really wasn't anything at that time that talked about women's ministry leadership the structure of a women's ministry um, and the purpose of a women's ministry. And so we thought, gosh, if we could just get together our local leaders and um, just really talk shop, like, let's do that. Let's, let's train each other. Let's, you know, maybe my church is really good at putting on a retreat and another church is really good at creating a discipleship program and let everybody teach from their strengths. And so it became kind of a cooperative learning event. And so we had quarterly meetings where we met and we would have time to fellowship and get to know each other. And then we would have this training. Um, We began to connect ourselves to um, organizations in the community so that we could help women's ministries um, find nonprofits or whatever that they could serve. And it was great and wonderful. And then over time, it began to kind of grow from being just women's ministry leaders just to women who are serving in ministry leadership, whatever that looks like. And um, we decided to take a um, interdenominational standpoint because we were talking about practical training, you know, how to function the ministry, how to write ministry budgets, why you should include, you know, certain elements like prayer and worship as part of your women's ministry events, things like that. We, we left the spiritual growth to their churches and their pastors. We really just wanted to handle the technical side of ministry training because most women's ministry leaders and most women who are stepping up for mops leadership or Bible study leadership, 
they've never had any formal training in ministry leadership. They've just kind of raised their head, hand and said, yeah, I'll do this. I would love to do that. Or I feel called to do this. So we were trying to fill that gap. And um, what I've loved about it is the connection that I now have with women's ministry leaders, not just locally, um, but women in ministry leadership in our community, but also um, now internationally, we've connected with so many women over the years, and we've learned so much about how ministry is done in other parts of the United States and even in other countries that um, it, it's just really broadened that view of, of the beauty and the impact that a good ministry has um, for women when it's led by another woman, whether that is a community-based ministry or a church-based ministry, it doesn't even matter, um, that there is something special about women ministering to other women. We, we speak the same language. We understand the same feelings. We've had the same experiences and we're able to, to grow so much more having that like-mindedness that, you know, I, I talk about like the, the idea that community is having common unity and when we have that common unity with other women, that in itself is just a huge, huge blessing. And um, so that I, I just love the, the connectiveness um, that we've been able to share ideas um, with each other and, and how it's grown over the years. You also started the Lead Her Conference. So would you tell us about this conference and your hope for it? So, you know, when you have meetings, you know, for like the Women's Ministry Council, we have quarterly meetings or whatever. Not everybody can go to those because, you know, a lot of people who are serving in ministry are volunteers. So they have like a full time job and then they're serving at their churches and their time is very um, it's kind of spread thin. And so we started the Lead Her Conference to be more of like a one stop shop for that person who can only get out to a training like one time a year. And, um, you know, when you look at the, the opportunities that are out there, you know, there are tons of conferences for youth pastors, head pastors, worship leaders, but there's not a whole lot out there for women who are in ministry leadership. And um, so we started the conference, we pick a theme each year, and the speakers kind of tailor their topics to those themes. And um, it's, it's a very intense conference because we do it TED Talk style. So each speaker only gets like 15, 20 minutes tops to present their topic. So it's very laser focused. It's very intentional. Um, but what I really hope to see is that God continues to, to grow it and use it in the manner that he has. And um, our last conference was double the number of attendees as the year before. Um the feedback that we've gotten from the last one has just, I mean, brought me to my knees in tears of just gratitude for the work that God's doing. Um, but also that we continue to just pour into these women who are pouring out to their churches and their communities and their families, that somebody sees them, somebody recognizes what they're doing. We value it. And we want to pour into you because if you're constantly pouring out and nothing's being poured back into you, that well is going to go dry. And so we want to be those people that come in and say, you know what, let us help fill your well. Let us, you know, teach you from the word of God so that you get to actually be Mary for a moment instead of Martha. Mm -hmm. um, let us come in and give you resources that maybe you don't know about. Let us help you. Um, in the areas where, where we've learned and grown. And every speaker 
that is a part of our speaker team each year is hand selected. Um, we don't just, you know, take in applications and go, okay, here's our first 12. Um, it's, they're very much hand selected. Most of them have at least 20 years of ministry leadership experience. Um, but occasionally we bring in somebody who has the life experience that only they can speak into, you know, so like for this last year's theme was leading her with grace. And, um, one of our speakers talked about, you know, leading um, with grace through grief. And she talked about what it was like leading her ministry while she was, um, you know, still healing from her miscarriage. You know what? Not everybody can speak to that. And so maybe she hasn't had 20 years under her belt, but she has an experience that very few of us can speak about. And so she was able to add something to the, the, to the, what we offered that was incredibly special and incredibly beautiful. And so we, we take it very seriously. The topics are very ser you know, taken seriously. The speakers are really prayed over and considered. Um, but our hope is that we continue just to do what God's called us to do each year and deliver the message that he's called us to and to reach the women that he has put before us. You encourage women to do what they can with what they have when they can. How have you seen this impact, like the, this model, this impact of this on your own life? So many of us can live in that space of like, if only, you know, if only I had an unlimited budget or, you know, if only I could win the lottery, here's what I would like to do. But the fact is, most of us are living within some sort of restraint. Maybe we're in a ministry that has a limited budget or no budget. You know, most of our churches are still small churches, 100 members or less bivocational pastors. So we have to learn to be able to work with what we've got. And um, when you build a community where you're connecting with other leaders, that exponentially increases what you have. You can speak at each other's events, you can share resources and that kind of stuff. Um, but you know what, when you look at, here's what I've got to work with, how can I make the best of it? You're really asking God to come in and kind of give you a fish and loaves moment where I've got 50 bucks, you know, Lord, what can I do with this? Well, if you have 50 bucks and the right people, you can put on an amazing event. If you have 50 bucks and the right people, you can go to eBay and you can buy that $150 Bible study kit used and save a ton of money. If you have $0, but you've got a good friend, you can borrow that you know, material from their church. That's awesome. And so there's these opportunities where we can help with what we have. Um, our church had an opportunity where we were, you know, kind of at the end of the year, budget was, you know, getting to the point where we didn't have any extra money to fund in. And we wanted to do a service project. And so we contacted um, an organization locally that puts together hygiene kits for the homeless. And Basically, all we just said to our, our membership was, look, we're collecting these particular items. Um, you know, we want to put together these bags. Can you, you know, we'll, we'll do just a collection, right? So the truth was for me at that time where I was at, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of money to go out and purchase these needs. But you know what? What I did have was I had time. And so I could show up that night and I could go in and I could pack bags like nobody's business. And that's what I did. And that was an opportunity of just using that, that time that I had. Um, there were years ago where I had a friend who was, you know, um, 
they were struggling financially and they didn't know how they were going to do Christmas for their kids. And I felt for them, but we were in a similar situation because our husbands both worked for the same company and there was a massive layoff and it was just, you know, bad news for everybody. But you know what I could do? I can bake like a champ. And so I put a few bucks into some ingredients. I baked a ton of stuff. I sold that stuff. And instead of me being able to say, look, all I can give you is, you know, 50 bucks, which is what I spent on the ingredients. I was able to give her $600. So when we look at our resources and we say, we see them as limited, but we take that hope that we have in Christ, right? We apply that here and we say, I'm trusting you that this is going to be a fish and loaves moment. Then when you're working with what you have, when you can, God can take that farther than you will ever be able to take it on your own. And so um, I really just encourage people to stop thinking that you can't do something, you can't help, you can't impact. And instead, just look at the ways you can. You may not have the money, but you have the time. Or if you don't have the time, you have the money. Or you may not have money and you may not have time, but you may have, you know, a horde of stuff that you've been collecting in your closet that you can donate to that organization because that just happens to be what they need. Maybe you were a couponer and, you know, you've been buying stuff off the shelves. Now you have an opportunity to serve with something that God, you know, helped you get months and months and months ago. There's a lot of ways, but when you do that and you trust in the Lord and you watch him multiply what it is that you're able to put out there, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing the Lord at work. And so you get to go back and once again, say, this wasn't even me. This was the Lord. He did this. I was just a small cog in the big machine of what he was able to accomplish. Mm, Amen. Well, so I'm interested as passionate as you are about women's ministry. And then you, you know, you are honest about your, your own family background and upbringing. So is there someone who has modeled women's ministry well for you in your life? When I was an, so when I was an adult, uh, got married, remember I said, you know, I was all about making sure my daughter, um, you know, was being raised in the church. So that meant that we were involved in a church. I was attending their women's ministry events. And um, it was really that team of women that set the gold standard for me for women's ministry. Um, the way that they functioned, the way that they served together, the even though we met regularly, like we had women's ministry events every single month, but everything was always rooted around the word of God. It was always about growing spiritually. It was never about just um, having a good time together. It was always purposeful and always intentional. And we also had amazing support from our church in that ministry. And so those ladies really set the foundation for me. And then as, you know, as I grew and we've moved a couple of times over the years because of work and whatnot, um, I, I got to then see kind of the other side of it and, and how, how we can go awry. And I always bring myself back to those women and what they were doing and how they accomplished it. And I go that they were on to something. And I have used that as the foundation for everything I've done ever since. Well, so how do you think we can best love women? I mean, putting all these things that we've talked about today, how do we love women? Well, we have to spend time with them. I think that's huge. Um, because right now as connected as we are through social media and the internet and technology, women particularly 
are feeling more and more disconnected and more alone. And uh, that's probably like a whole other podcast. So <laughs> I will yeah, try to condense. Especially now that we're all quarantined. We're talking right now during the coronavirus, you know. Yes. Yeah. So especially now, right? Yeah, right. Like I, I have this envision that when the quarantine is lifted and we all get to go back to church, like even the non-huggers are going to be <laughs> hugging people. It's, yeah. it's going to be glorious. It's going to be a wonderful moment for us. Yeah. Um, but you know what? The truth is, even before this, the, the statistics were there, we feel more alone. As connected we are, we feel more alone. And so the, the best way that we love women well is, is connecting to them personally invite her out for coffee, know her name, know her story, understand who her children are, what's important to her, meet her where she is. And while you're there, we love her by taking her straight to Jesus. Mm, Yes. Oh, absolutely. So um, how can we keep in contact with you, Gina, and and get some of your resources and purchase your book and all of those things? If you go to my website, which is Gina B. McCown, so that's G-E-N-A, the letter B, M-C-C-O-W-N.com, right there, you can connect to pretty much everything I do. Um, Information for the book is on there. There's a link to my blog, um, which right now I'm kind of having fun with. I I inherited a book of scripture notes from my great uncle. And I've been going through them and trying to understand what his spiritual journey was in creating this little notebook. So you can connect to my blog from there. And also there's a link to all of my social media accounts. So you can, um, you can find me. I'm not hard to find. I I like to keep myself out there now, Uh, which is weird because I'm actually quite an introvert. So, um, but, but you know, when it comes to the Lord, it's nice to be able to just say, you know what, here I am. Take me as you find me. I'm not perfect. Um, I make mistakes too. And, uh, but you know what? Let's, let's walk this road together. Mm. So I'm out there messing all the mess yeah. and all. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Me too. Well, Gina, thank you so much for being my guest today and for encouraging us to have hope because we are still here and we are still here for a purpose and also just to inspire mm-hmm. us to use our gifts to minister to other women exactly where we are. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And just, I mean, if I can just leave one thing is I want to go back to what I said every day that you wake up, that you are still here. You've got one more shot. Take it, Mm. share the gospel, reach women, serve well, lead well. Every day is another opportunity to do it again. Yay. Thank the Lord. Thank you so much, Gina. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode with Gina McCowan. I hope that you, like I did, realize that because we are still here, that means that God has something special for us to do today. If you're interested in receiving show notes, you can head on over to at Rachel Adams Author on Instagram or on Facebook. I would love to connect with you there. And also, you can have them sent directly to your inbox each week by going to rachelkadams.com and subscribing to receive my weekly love offering newsletter. 
Next week, my guest is KJ Ramsey. KJ is the author of This Too Shall Last. And so we're going to be talking about finding grace when suffering lingers. So until we meet again, I hope that you have a terrific week. And as always, remember to lead with love.